Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're <laughs> listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Tim Burrows. Joining me to break down your week in media and marketing is our deputy editor, Josie Tutty. Hello. Our advertising and comms reporter, Abigail Dawson. Hello. And our senior media reporter, Zoe Samuels. Hello. Plus, coming up later, we'll be chatting to the award-winning team from CHE Proximity about... Dirty dealings behind some closed doors. Media agencies are recommending channels that we know they're commissioned on. Cleaning up the industry's act. Media itself isn't corrupt, isn't dodgy, but there are other players within there that bring everybody else down. And Chris Howitson being the client whisperer. Firstly, do they call Howie the client whisperer? <laughs> Is that a thing? I've never heard that. So. <laughs> That's frightening. <laughs> if it, it's probably true. It's um, not, not true. Look, I just, it's not true. But first, the week's topics. Herald Sun's racist cartoon controversy. Alan Jones's big libel bill. What happened when an unhappy client took their agency to court? And we've got the verdict on that massive budget direct ad. So, first, and Zoe, I'm going to come to you first on this one. Cartoonist Mark Knight has found himself some global attention for his cartoon on behalf of the Herald Sun in Melbourne of Serena Williams, the tennis player, having a dummy spit at the uh, US Open Tennis. What was that all about? Well, basically, it it came from uh, Serena Williams' performance at the US Open. Uh, She was she basically had three court violations and the umpire whose name I actually forget off the top of my head, uh, basically caught her out on it and she was penalized. She then obviously didn't respond very well to that. And then, um, Mark Knight, who's the cartoonist for the Herald Sun, um, basically put out this, this cartoon of, of Serena basically with a dummy next to her. Um, I'm going to try and visually describe this because you can't see this. Uh, and I'm sure you have probably with her basically chucking a dummy spit effectively racket broken on the ground. Um, and her opponent asking the um, umpire, can you just let her win? But basically what happened after that was just this huge global eruption. And I've been looking all over the news this, this week, basically for my week in publishing. And it, it really, really divided both the Australian public and the global public about whether this was actually racist or not. And what was it that potentially made it a racist cartoon? My understanding is it was actually the face of Serena. So there were the way that she had been drawn had, you know, references, historical references to the way that they, uh, basically used to draw or perceive um, African-American people a really long time ago and people felt that that had been intentional. Um, and that So it was this a, was caricatures, like, like cari- big lips, big wiry lips. hair. Yeah, exactly. And, and they felt that that was an intentional attack on Serena Williams's race uh, rather than a depiction of what had actually happened uh, at the So US how Open. did Mark Knight defend that then? He basically went out and... and I think the first thing that I saw on Twitter was that he basically put up a, one from um, Nick Kyrgios the week before who had also behaved badly in the game and said, well, you know, look, I did it to this. I did it to Nick Kyrgios, Australian player, last week. Um, I'll accept your apology in writing, which didn't sit well. Because at that point I think he felt that he was being attacked for being sexist rather yes, than racist. exactly. Um, and I think, again, that was – that just kind of escalated the problem and, and, and people went went out at him. I think his Twitter's actually gone now. He he was getting death threats. It got it really, really escalated. And then um, you know, you saw the News Corp uh, executive chairman Michael Miller coming out and defending it. And the day after you saw the Herald Sun with a lot of Mark Knight's cartoons, basically arguing that the world was too politically correct. And they went with the uh, headline PC World Gone Mad. Um PC World being a bit of a pun on a, a PC UK. World. <laughs> The best of both worlds. Nobody else will know what that means because <laughs> that's a UK electronics <laughs> retailer. So when I saw that headline, I thought, oh, someone at the Herald Sun used to uh, used to live in the UK, probably. Um, Zoe, one, one of the uh, kind of, I suppose, key points that Mark Knight made was he was unaware of that history of that type of cartoon. So he wasn't, certainly not consciously, referencing that. You know, he said, well, you know, he argued, he, he, he really argued, how can it be racist when I didn't know it was racist. Well, it brings into that issue of intent, which I know we've spoken about in the office. Is it racist 
like he he's basically arguing why well, didn't intend to be racist therefore i'm not racist i just think that's just a terrible argument you, yeah you can still be racist or you can do something that is racist without being racist or having hatred towards a particular group you can still do things that are basically sort of surrounded by so much historical precedence and to to just be ignorant and to claim that oh well I don't really see it as that and therefore I'm not going to really look at the history of it you know consider other people's opinions I'm just going to say well I don't think it's racist so it's not racist I just don't think that's a pretty terrible argument and look it, it reminds me a little bit of um gosh a few years back now I, I remember writing a story about uh, when hey hey it's Saturday came back briefly they had this sort of uh, I, th- I think they were actually doctors by profession, but this group of sort of, you know, they, they would have amateur acts called Red Faces. And they had a group of, uh, I think, Queensland doctors who all blacked up to play the Jackson 5. And it went to air live. And uh, a very shocked Harry Connick Jr., who was one of the judges, obviously with far more of the context than these presumably well-meaning doctors, kind of just made the point, well, if this was uh, in America, that would be, hey, hey, no more show. Um, uh, and again, there was this massive Ferrari where overseas it was seen as, you know, blackface, hugely racist. Argument for the doctors, well, we didn't know. Um, it happened. Again, it happens it again like and again. The thing ignorant. is, I think that the things that are the most racist is probably when there is no intent, when people don't realise, mm. and it's not really the place of the person doing it to make a call whether it's racist or not, intent regardless of intent, if the person on the receiving end does feel that it is racist, no matter what you were attempting to do or what you were trying to convey, it doesn't change the fact that the way that it has been received was it was racist. Another thing that I seem to notice is all the people who are saying it isn't racist are white people. And everyone who seems to be commenting on this outspokenly seem to be a lot of white people. We're all a group of white people in this room and we're discussing it. Where are the people from the race that is being caricatured? talking about it and you know they're the ones who need to say whether it's racist or not not a load of white people so zoe when we wrote the story uh one of the the aspects was that the uh, australian press council which is the industry funded body which uh, regulates the press confirmed they'd had um at least one complaint didn't say at that point whether they were going to investigate or not but when the when the press council looks at something how does it work well, basically, they they all meet up. There's a group of people, basically, that will adjudicate on different uh, complaints that are put out. My understanding is that the way that it works is those people will sit on a room on a, on a conference call. They'll sit there with usually the editor or the or the journalist in question on one line and the complainant on the other, and they will act as sort of a mediator. In they'll they'll ask for the views, and then they'll end up making a decision. If you know this does go ahead, and if if the press council do do look at this particular cartoon, I actually don't know what the proceedings are for a, a, an image. I know that when when a, an article has been in breach of press council guidelines, they usually will remove the article from online and put a press council ruling explaining that. In the case of Mark Knight, I don't think that there's ever going to be a situation where the cartoon's going to go away, and as we've spoken about on, on previous podcasts and in general, the, the press council can't fine you or anything like that. You don't get penalised in that sense. You just kind of get a, you're naughty, don't do it again kind of thing. For, for those wondering what the noise was, that was Zoe <laughs> slapping her own wrist. <laughs> yes, sometimes these things are lost on podcasts. <laughs> Next, having solved racism, we move on to the big two legal stories of the week. So Alan Jones, uh, along with his uh, employer, Sydney's 2GB, and uh, fellow radio station Brisbane 4BC, has been ordered to pay $3.4 million in damages to the people he wrongly suggested were responsible for the deaths of 12 people in the Queensland floods. So Zoe, uh, let's maybe just talk about what this case was about briefly. So basically between – it was almost a year's worth, but between October of 2014 and August of 2015, Alan Jones, who, if you're not based in Sydney, is the breakfast host on 2GB. He's also syndicated to stations up in Brisbane, including 4BC, made um, some claims in relation to uh, a family up in Brisbane called the the Wagner family. Uh, and basically in 2011 there were, there were a series of floods and what he was suggesting was – 
there was a quarry wall on their property or a, a bit that they owned basically which had collapsed um, and he was basically insinuating that that family was responsible for the deaths of the 12 people who died in those in those floods in 2011. Basically, it, it, when you make a claim like that, well, I don't know what I would do, but I would probably I would probably sue for defamation. That's a really big claim to accuse someone of impl- even having any involvement in the death of, of 12 people. And, and from there, it basically escalated. Uh, the Wagner family sued. It's been in the uh, Queensland Supreme Court uh, for a number of Oh, it feels like months now. I think it kicked off earlier this year, and and this week we finally saw that uh, Jones had been found guilty, as had two GB and four BC for defamation. And the payout is, as you said, quite quite sizable. So each brother um, has been awarded seven hundred and fifty thousand worth of damages plus interest in relation to twenty seven matters concerning two GB, and in relation to the two matters concerning four BC, which is the Brisbane station, they've all been awarded another hundred thousand dollars each plus interest. So you're looking at a a very big payout. And I do know that Macquarie Media put about three million aside in their financial results for situations such as this without actually naming the specific defamation case. But if they don't if they do not end up appealing or if the appeal doesn't work they will be paying that much in damages and that's that's a lot of money and Zoe it's worth making a couple of points one of which is um, obviously this was something which went through the civil courts rather than than criminal yeah. so although various people have sort of used the phrase including in, in in some of the newspapers that he was guilty of something it wasn't as if he was charged with something no, but they, they, they were saying that you know the he he'd, he'd acted in such a way that the family had been defamed um the other thing is, Alan Jones is the first person to say, I'm not a journalist, I'm a commentator. Does that make it different in some way? Does it give him more leeway, do you think? I don't think there's any excuse, really. Um, You know, I could make a comment and I could call myself not a journalist, but ultimately if you defame someone, you defame someone. It doesn't matter if you're a journalist or a commentator. And Alan has been on air long enough and he's had that many losses in the civil court. He's had to pay out a number of different people for defamation. He should know better. You know, there's a number of other people on that station who are shock jocks, even the likes of Ray Hadley, that won't go as far as to make accusations like that. There's a line. And it doesn't matter how much of a shock jock he is. Ultimately, there is a line. You cannot suggest or imply to someone that that someone has been involved in the deaths of of 12 people. That's a really big accusation. And it didn't seem like there was actually any basis for those claims. So for the radio station, he brings in really big ratings. Huge. Is he a liability though? Well, according to the the CEO of Macquarie Media, Adam Lang, no. Uh, I'd argue probably yes, but the line between how much of a liability to the point that would we get him off air is obviously there's a lot of legroom around there. I don't know how much advertising revenue Alan Jones would bring in, but his listenership is huge. His share is so far bigger than any FM uh, station um, in Sydney and – you know, it would be a massive gamble. I wonder what the board's thinking. Obviously, there'd be a lot of pressure when you've got a massive payout like this and and you had Alan Jones in headlines just a few weeks ago for using the N-word on air and it wasn't the first time. It just feels like, is he worth that much advertising revenue that you're not going to ever pull him off air? And and I think at this point they're going, you know what, probably not. He'll probably stay on air for a bit longer. It does make you wonder what he actually would have to do to be brought off air barry hall was pulled off air for making jokes about a co-host wife i would argue that a lot of the things alan jones has done is a lot worse than that but because he probably is well he's definitely a lot bigger name than barry hall so he kind of is almost untouchable but i think you look at 3aw in melbourne who also have huge audience shares and part of the same organization so you know i don't Everyone's replaceable. I don't think that you know he's the be all or end all at two GB, and and I think that you you could do it without them. And also, what does it say for the for two GB as a brand? Well, oh. hypothetically, hypothetically, if you got rid of Jones, you'd probably bring Hadley into an earlier time slot. But the thing is, there is some talent there, and you've got Ben Fordham, who's awesome as well, and there are a number of people, Chris Smith as well. But it feels as though it will never fill the gap 
of Jones and it just might not be a big enough share for anyone else to be able to do his slot. Look, if they fired Jones, he'd go somewhere else and surely his audience would just follow him. Exactly. And that's a massive risk that they've got as well. So if I were the board and if I were the executives, yes, this is um, costly, but if he goes to another station and he's bringing in all the advertising revenue there, well, you know, maybe $3.4 million isn't that much money in the big scheme of things. You mentioned Adam Lang as the the CEO. I sometimes chuckle to myself about a, a bit thinking, because he used to be over at uh, Today FM. And um, like I could, yeah, it was a long time ago, but I can just remember sort of, you know, thinking of him sort of, you know, I imagine he would be driving in and he'd hear Kyle Sanderland say something because it was in those days groaning knowing what sort of day he had ahead of him it must all feel a bit like groundhog day now that he's apologizing for alan jones instead of carl sanderland's yeah i mean on the fm bandwidth kyle is probably the the equivalent of alan not in the same way at all i would never compare the two of them but adam seems like a lot of his work is apologizing or, or cleaning up the damage of the shock jocks, but ultimately if it's bringing in the money and if it's still a successful business, what will be interesting though is if the Nine and Fairfax merger goes ahead, how Nine actually feels about that. Because my understanding is that, you know, that so they fa- are very- it's worth saying that Fairfax owns just over yeah, half of Macquarie exactly. Media, which owns these radio stations. Exactly, and should the Fairfax and Nine merger go ahead, Nine will have that share. Uh, I'm re- really interested to see what Hugh Marks thinks of all of this, to be perfectly honest because he's the one that's going to take on this bill should that merger go ahead uh, following ACCC approval. And I'd be interested to see whether he thinks it's worth the payoff. Well, still with the courts, this week, media agency. In fact, these days, it's more of a full service agency, although it had its roots in media. Icon was in court in a battle with their former client, hair care company, Advangen. So um, the background to this is that that Icon is one of the, the, the many WPP AUNZ owned agencies they they took legal action against their client when they wouldn't pay their invoices Advangen launched their own counterclaim suggesting that um, Icon had uh, failed to deliver the massive sales spike it was expecting from a new TV ad and it's all become a bit of a test case for um, what can reasonably be expected of an agency on behalf of a client do they actually have a duty of care to deliver um, effective advertising at the end um, now the, the the case as we're recording this is still ongoing likely to go on for a week or two so, so let's not prosecute the case too much but let's talk about some of the principles behind this Abby, you you talk to agency bosses all the time, particularly on the creative agency side, the PR agency side. How long into a conversation, if ever, does it does does it take before they get to the point where they care about how much money they make for their client? To be honest with you, Tim, I can't even recall probably one time where money we were a discussion where money has come up has actually ever occurred. When I'm talking with agency bosses, it's more about the effectiveness of advertising, the strategy, the creative. And But when they talk about effectiveness, do they mean selling stuff or do they mean raising awareness, for instance? Oh, well, I think they sort of uh, come hand in hand. If, if you do raise awareness, you are much more likely to earn money. But ROI, return on investment, I mean, that, that's a huge part of advertising. Next, Creative Corner. So this week we saw new campaign work from Meat and Livestock Australia, from Budget Direct, from Bank West and from 13 Cabs amongst others. So let's start with Meat and Livestock Australia. It was their spring campaign, which in recent years has been become known for being quite controversial at times, not least uh, last year's, which uh, looked at, at championing diversity in a world of political diversiveness. Uh, this time, Abby... Now, I'm trying not to get to maybe disappointed is the wrong word, but too disappointed because we still have their Australia Day timed campaign. I know they don't say Australia Day anymore for other reasons, but so we we, we may yet see something big and controversial from them. But this feels less agenda setting, a bit more just about and and sounds funny criticizing this when we've just been talking about value for money. They only seem to be interested in selling lamb. What's that all about? (laughs) It's really interesting because I think MLA and the Monkeys, their creative agency, uh, have really defined and actually drawn a bit of a line of how we can use culture and and how we can use, uh, you know, political things in advertising. And this definitely feels a lot like 
it's taken out the reference of how lamb fits into our life, which is what a lot of their ads have been about previously. It's- and this time it's, uh, and let's hear a clip, it's um, a chef in a hot tub. Moroccan lamb loin chops. How do you do it? All you need is the lamb, Moroccan spices. And a pan. So I guess the message is about simplicity. Correct. I think what they've done here is it's a very simple product first advertising. And look, if if I if there hadn't been the previous spring lamb ads and I saw this one, you know, I would think it's a good ad. It's good creative. It's a simple strategy and it's it's all about the lamb. But I think for me and, and I would agree with you when you know, you, you use the word disappointing is you are looking for something a little bit more. And I think it's that cultural reference. I suppose the thing for me is I wonder though, how much is me as a journalist disappointed because there's not a big story versus necessarily trying to assess the quality of the marketing itself. Uh, you know, and it's gonna be absolutely fascinating whether this sells a bunch of stuff or not. The thing that's a really interesting point about selling stuff because I know that with the MLA Spring Ad and and the Australia Day, which I don't even think they caught now, they just call it Celebrate uh, Lamb or Celebrate Australia. Or the summer campaign. Yeah, the summer campaign. That's right. People always ask, you know, they're provocative, they're political, but do they sell lamb? I would probably be more inclined to say this might actually sell the lamb, even though it's not as provocative because it's top of mind, you know what you're doing. Whereas the other ones, you get all these messages and there's mass awareness, but there is a question of, does that transition into, and I'm going to pick up lamb off the shelf at the supermarket. It did actually remind me of the Uber Eats ads because it was sort of a quirky one person and just sort of holding up the thing. And I find that those Uber Eats ads are actually quite effective and they because they're sort of locally based and they remind me like, oh, I might just actually go pick up a uber eats so i feel like it even though i'm vegetarian is actually if i did buy lamb it probably would work Uh, i think the thing for me that i find really intriguing about it it is that what does this reflect is this a strategy change for mla obviously andrew howie um has since departed mla their top marketer and for me i'm i'm curious does this mean that mla is going to shift towards more of a product first strategy and I mean you can always expect good creative from the monkeys that's that's not really a question there but I'm really intrigued as what does this mean for their summer campaign are we going to see that big political ad that you know gets across every headline in all types of media or is this a bit of a changing of the guard well I guess that's the question is will they be brave once more speaking of brave I think we could describe Budget Direct's uh, latest uh, contribution to the world of advertising's debate as that so they have walked away from Captain Risky perhaps forever perhaps just for this campaign we don't know that yet and moved in a whole new direction with a hard-bitten detective called Sarge let's hear from him we have a situation how fast can you get there Fast enough. How does he always do that? Sarge, you ever seen anything like this? Not since Aberdeen in 83. So that was just a little bit of Sarge. That ad went on for an epic two and a half minutes of primetime Sunday night television. Uh, so that sort of feeling that perhaps you were watching a trailer for a detective drama rather than uh, an, an, an ad for, for budget insurance. Um, so, Abs, what, what do you think they're trying to do? For me, I find this ad really interesting for the fact that Captain Risky was the face of a brand and actually also I think really represented Budget Direct, which is a challenger brand. And I think that while this ad is creatively brilliant, it's shot well, it's produced well, it's got a good storyline, I actually don't know if it will do as much for the brand that Captain Risky has done. I think it puts it back in, we're another brand, we want to do a cool ad, here we are. Do you know what? I mean, I I think I'd probably give them at least two points. Number one you know their their challenge is to get people to think about well, why don't i actually ring up my insurer and ask for a better price or go and look for a better price so that whole thing is about that's the real mystery and that's really really that that's a genuine piece of behavior change they're trying to trigger 
So that I think is a massive. Plus. I think I think for me when I was watching it, I just sort of got a minute into it, and I I was just like, I don't know if it was just because I was at my desk and a bit busy and watching it on YouTube instead of on the TV, but I was like, I'm, I'm going to click off on this now. It's been going on for too long, and it, that that bit that you're talking about only really comes mm. right at the end. So I just wonder how many people are going to be able to pay attention for that long. Well, let's remember that ad would have only run on television once at that length, just for sheer affordability. Mm. But I think the the second point where maybe they they deserve a bit of benefit of the doubt is these were the people who did... Do you remember those Bouget Bouget ads? They were massive. They were iconic. And they walked away from them to do Captain Risk. Well, in fact, for a while they had those aliens, Zeke and Zia. But they walked away from, um, from Bouget Bouget, which was so powerful, to do something else instead. So they're, you know... They, they've pulled it off before. They pulled it off with Captain Risky. And I mean, you know, we, we don't know for a definitive yes or no whether or not Captain Risky is coming back, but I do think that they did struggle with Captain Risky a little bit from a strategy perspective in some people didn't actually know what Captain Risky represented. Is he the person that you do insure? And if you can insure Captain Risky, then you can insure me? Or is he the one that you don't? And I think that actually really confused a lot of people. So maybe this is a step in trying to sort of iron out a few creases that they did have in that strategy there well from Sarge to Serge let's hear from Serge I can get you anywhere with no search pricing except underwater so that's 13 cabs they're extending their leaning on the character of Serge who is the uh the 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 the, the lovable cab driver if there's such a thing who's the opposite of Uber Abby he is indeed. It's it is a very a YouTube focused campaign. So basically, they've done a whole lot of pre roll ads that um, are sort of tailored to trending searches on YouTube, and you know Taylor Swift. He says Taylor Swift lyrics and Drake lyrics and things like that to um, try and I think the word that they used was modernize to try and modernize one three cabs. It has just been through a rebrand, so it's sort of the next instalment of this. But which is the agency? Thinkabel. So. Uh, which was actually to my next point. Um, I think the thing that's become really apparent is Thinkabel have produced a lot of work recently. We've seen their Sukin work, their Vegemite work, their One Three Cabs work. And for me, again, I feel like the strategy behind this using surging prices, because, you know, almost everyone I know when Uber surging, you go to a cab. But again, I just feel that the creative's just not as strong as the strategy. And I think for me, it's a bit of a trend you that I have that been seeing. Vegemite. That's what I'm saying. Why do you hate Thinkabel, Abby? Why? <laughs> I, don't. I really like their Sukin ad. I think their Sukin ad is brilliant and their simplicity is brilliant. But I don't know. There was an interesting tweet when I was watching it um, this morning from Jason Pellegrino, who's the new CEO of Domain on our Twitter. He tweeted to us and he made a really valid point. He'd taken a photo of the 13 Cabs queue and someone refusing to take passengers. And it's a really valid point. It, even if you like the creative, you've got to, it. It's not just about a good ad. You need to transition customer service. And if your customer, if a one three cabs driver is not going to serve customers and is going to be rude or the car's going to be filthy, that real there's massive disconnect there, and that's a real problem. But I would argue that that's the same with Uber. I have heard horrific stories about Uber, so I think you know it works for Uber, and people don't really seem to care about the customer experience they're getting with Uber. You know. One three cabs, it doesn't work for them. I just think that it's a really, really good strategy and I do really like it. I also wonder if the idea of if Uber's not working, you go to a, a cab is actually right because personally, when my Uber's not working, I go to Taxify or I go to Ola or I go to another similar app. I don't actually go to one three cabs. That's an interesting point. And I think too, the thing about Uber that they get away with it, even though I've had instances where a driver has driven away from me when I've ordered an Uber pool, which I was really angry about. The thing about Uber at least is you can track where you're going. There is a point where you you know what you're getting. It's not actually going to cost you as much as a taxi. So the trade-off is, yeah, I might get a bit of a shit experience, but it's cheaper. Welcome and to our new that. segment, Rideshare Review with Zoe. <laughs> Now, um, to, 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 to Zoe's earlier point on on the gap between what's portrayed and reality, Bankwest are uh, uh, the final ad we're talking about this week. Let's hear that. Banks are oh, great. I love my bank. 
Imagine if people only had great things to say about banks. My call is really important to them. To banks, I'm just a number, but I like numbers. Well, in the real world, most comments aren't. Paying bank fees makes me feel so generous. That's why at Bankwest, we're on a mission to change. Because who really wants more bank in their life? I would love to spend more personal time with my bank. We just want to be an awesome bank that's here when you need us. It's a journey that starts today. So what's interesting about this Bankwest ad is they're almost reacting to the Royal Commission, which is still going on with the banks. Um, And they're sort of sending the message, hey, we're not like the rest. I mean, they're owned by ComBank. Isn't the whole thing just massively cynical? I mean, Tim, but... uh I understand where you're coming from, but at the same time, like, I don't think that you can expect brands to just sit back and let the Royal Commission happen and just say, oh, sorry, we can't really talk about this because people don't want to hear it. They're a business. They're a company. They need to keep operating. And I think, you know, I I actually think props to them for actually trying to make an attempt to address it, which a lot of banks haven't. I think I, I think that it's a it's a bold move well i suppose that's the sort of creative side of it the, the 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 public perception side the comms the pr side of it i mean we talked about this before and i'm sure we'll talk about it again before the end of the royal commission i just find myself day after day unable to stop reading the afr thinking you people are total scum there's no other description for it when you hear about the things these people have got back to. Then you read all about the 10 years on GFC, how Australia's banks were rescued by the government and how good old public taxpayers funds rescued these people. And that's how they repaid the public by utterly screwing them. All of them, all of the big banks have all been up. They've all done it time and time again. Welcome to Tim Hates Banks. Welcome to Tim Hates Banks. <laughs> but the question is, how... How do they market their way out of that? It's it's really tough, Tim, and, and it's not one that I, I have a definitive answer for. I think it's about, and, you know, we people talk about a lot about this in comms and PR, it's just about not having a solution but having a conversation and opening up channels where people feel like they are heard and they feel like their banks are listening. And I think that really is going to be the key in this. You You can't have a bank tell you, what's what they're doing and how they're fixing it i really think it's got to be flipped onto the consumer and and they've got to feel heard but bankwest strategy that's addressing it i think is way better than making a fluffy ad being like let's forget about the thing in the background where you're all we're all really doing dodgy things people you've been caught lying you've screwed people address it confront it i actually think that strategy is a lot smarter than pretending that it's all fairies and rainbows and we're still going to take all your money and zoe i totally agree with you i think it's a lot better than help tagline which westpac uses and i just think is poor timing um but to talk a little bit more about the bank bank less ad i think that and again i feel like i say this all the time it's a bit of a trend but the strategy there i think is really nailed it and it's really on point and I think it's really what the banking industry needs to do but where was the creative team when this ad was made like that is a genuine question I'm asking here I feel like the strategy team really led that ad and I think it's 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 not a compliment when you say your strategy is showing and it's (laughs) but I think it's 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 missing it the creative's missing because I think when you see bank less, which is the tagline that they've used in isolation. It's a bit confusing. Like, what do you mean bank less? Do you want me to, I, th- I think that they probably needed a bit more creative to, um, to just make it a bit of a stronger ad. Well, next we move on to our guests of the week, Abby and Josie. We'll be talking to the masterminds behind one of Australia's most exciting agencies, Chris Howitson and Ant White from CHE Proximity. So on today's podcast, I'm here with CHE Proximity, or CHEP, as people in the industry now seem to be calling it. Joining us from CHEP is CEO Chris Howitson and Chief Creative Officer Ant White. Also in the room with us, pressing the buttons, is Mumbrella's Deputy Editor, Josie Tutty. Hello. CHE Proximity launched about six years ago and now has clients including Car Sales, Cochlear, Velocity Frequent Flyer, Swan Insurance and Mazda. So... 
CHE has been an extremely successful agency over the last couple of years with both its media and creative offering. It had a bit of a quick rise to fame, if you like, but after attending the roving jury for the Mumbrella Awards this year, I think the thing that I found most interesting about the agency was its truly modern, integrated approach and way of thinking. To me, the agency really feels quite fresh, but I still find it really difficult to put my finger on just what it is that makes the agency so intriguing. I mean, how do you summarise what makes CHEP so different and so interesting? Sure. Well, thank you, firstly. It's very nice of you. I think um, we've had a really great couple of months, I think. I wouldn't even say we've had a great year yet because it's a it's a young year. Um, but if we went back to why we established CHEP, in 2012, so you're right, it was six years ago, it was about empowering the CMO to bring back their position on the board. And that was essentially shifting comms again or shift marketing from soft metrics to hard metrics. And, you know, as we're all aware and, um, you know, we'll go to the conferences and we'll read about it, advertising is well different now to what it was 10 years ago and certainly a lot different to what it was 20 years ago. And the power of data and technology and what that's allowing us to do from addressability point of view is fundamentally disrupting what the nature of advertising is. So, if I go back to the foundations of advertising, go back to the sort of the Great Depression of 1930, and Kellogg's, I believe, were one of the few companies that realised that if you invested above your share of market, you would grow um, disproportionately. So, back then was created this idea that share of voice equals share of market, and if I over or under invest against that, that equilibrium, I'll either grow or diminish my brand respectively. Now, that was based in a world where share of voice was essentially just TV and you could buy that quite easily. And so, if it was 1990, the board could say to the head of marketing, we've got a million dollars left over, um, how many more units can you move? All else being equal, a million dollars would give me 10 more points share of voice and that would drive my market share point by one and that share point might be worth 5 million. So, that's a good return on investment. I think what all of our industry and peers are struggling with right now is it's very hard to come to that commercial equation around what's the return on marketing. And we've been through maybe the last 10 or 15 years with digital where there is a lot of measurability, but, um, you know, we've obviously seen with Mark Pritchard and, and PNG, there's been a lot of, I guess you could say corruption, if at the worst, um, non-transparency at the best in the supply chain. And what has been attributed as potentially being marking success is, is not necessarily the case. I think what we're doing is we're coming out of that time zone now and coming out of that formative era of comms and where we truly are entering an era where we can track an individual. So, if I want to talk to you, Abby, I can, I can identify you as a cookie and or a device ID or whatever that may be and deliver and orchestrate a connected conversation across channels. And that's the big difference. And while we didn't potentially know that that would be the outcome we were at today, six years ago when we started, that was really what we set out to achieve. So, to bring the CMO back into power into the boardroom by having a greater understanding of the commercial impact of the work they do and the way we structure our agency around that proposition and that ambition was essentially have all the skills we could possibly have to influence the customer across their journey. So, be that the classic disciplines as, a, as they were described as brand, retail, data, direct, digital media, all those things which were previously disparate skills because you didn't really need that integration because there was no strong motivation to integrate them, we now have a pressing need for them to be all as one all the time. And I think where we found ourselves is six, year on, six years on and a lot of investment to get us to that point, um, we're starting to bear the success of that and the work that we're creating for our clients in that it's um, you know the perfect balance of commercial creativity, those two things coming together. Now, you mentioned the distrust in the industry and the fact that we are starting to turn the corner and maybe we can now honestly say this is the data and this is correct. But I feel like the clients might turn around to you and say, well, I don't, why should I believe you? How do you take what you know as an honest piece of data and persuade your client and build that trust? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. So, trust is earned, right? The trust isn't isn't achieved in one moment. It's It's the values and the approach and the ethics of your agency and how you engage in the whole relationship. So, I think you have to be, you have to build and earn that trust everywhere. And I think that comes at the most simplest dimension around recommending an idea because it's right for the brand, not because it's right for an award show or or whatever we might be ambitious towards. And equally, when you're recommending a spend recommendation in a 
particular media channel that you're disclosing the supply chain that breaks up that cost. We see all the time um, with clients that we work with where we don't have the media that media agencies are recommending channels that we know they're commissioned on. And so when the client increases their budget, um, all of a sudden you're seeing the commission channels being invested in disproportionately to what that investment was. Uh, and we just don't think that's right. You know, it's, um, you know, if you have a good relationship with a client, you'll be paid fairly. And you don't need to be duplicitous around it where you get that extra revenue from. And I think there was a real push on that, you know, that the A&A in America had really pushed on that and Mark Pritchard with PNG really pushed on that. But I think it's, it's quietened up a little bit now. And this isn't, I don't think it's, endemic across the whole industry like i don't i i think we need to be really careful to say media itself isn't corrupt isn't dodgy but there are other players within there that bring everybody else down uh, and that you know that's a shame that that happens but i think clients are pretty aware of it um the good agencies are really aware of it and they're starting to have those conversations so it'll just be a matter of time until proper media transparency is everywhere is this why they call you the client whisperer, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. But um... <laughs> um, you spoke a lot, sort of, about the the media and creative side of things there. Um, and how do you take a, a, a brief that might sort of lend itself more to a media brief and make it quite inherently creative? Um... Firstly, do they call Howie the client whisperer? <laughs> Is that a thing? I've never heard that. So. <laughs> it's frightening. It's probably true. It's um, not, not true. Look, I just, it's not true. Um, we don't do. We don't really get media briefs. It always starts with um, an insightful human brief. Or what? Do, what do we want to do? Um, and and the creative has to has to connect with people. Um, it has to be funny. It has to. Do, do people want this in the world? Is it informative? Then what we do with that is then we get the media team involved and we can break down who we're going to speak to and how that message is going to be relevant to different people along the journey and how that message will change along a journey as well. So it always starts with a creative spark, an insightful idea, something that people want to see in the world. Um, there's, I don't think there's any such thing as a, as a media brief that is a creative brief you always need the first bit um but the media brief does give us an edge to talk to people like that we have a whole new toolkit now of of um sort of creative tricks that we can use to talk to people but it all all has to come from one sort of emotional space i think you can see that quite well with um velocity the velocity frequent flyer campaign which you won umbrellas media campaign of the year for do you want to tell us a little bit about that how it came to be and how it came to win well i don't know how it came to win <laughs> maybe we but, would be better but, to tell yeah, you that <laughs> maybe you can tell us that like we can both sort of answer this um in our own ways but but essentially it, it did need a hook it needed a we needed to reframe the usual 15% transfer bonus. Um, and everyone loves a mistake, especially when a big brand stuffs up. So the intern giving away a billion points was funny. Like we thought that that would connect. Do you want to maybe just explain the campaign for anyone who hasn't seen it? Yeah. Uh, have people not seen it? Oh, wow. No, I'm joking. It's <laughs> <laughs> a rude no, question. I'm not, of course I haven't. Um, it was for Velocity. We Every... Every couple of months, they do a bonus um, offer where they give you 15% bonus on your points when you transfer from your bank cards into Velocity. Um, and so we reframed that offer rather than giving away 15% to everyone and just putting out that usual message. We reframed it as we're giving away a billion points and there's a pool of a billion points to give away. But we wanted to actually create a hook that got people interested um, that sort of broke the category open a bit it's it's full of cliches and offers and jargon so we thought well let's be a bit human about it and accidentally give away these billion points from a typo in an email that happened to come from an intern the beauty of velocity and a lot of these service brands is we can have a direct relationship with eight million people give or take mm. um for velocity they've got eight million members so we can send a mistake email out to all of them and so it really feels like it's playing out in the real world so it starts from an email and the con consequences of giving away a billion points or 999 million points, more than a million points, um, can then unfold through a mini-series on Facebook and, and on people's phones and on their screens and they can watch it 
play out for a month. And that's what we did. I think one of the things we, it was interesting, Ant and I were talking in the car on the way here around some of the things we might talk about. And um, one of the things that, that we've identified, I guess, over the last little while is every time we come up with the next thing for our clients, it forces us to change how we work. So, one of the things we learned on Billion Points was we're using a lot of data, we're using a lot of good technology, but actually one of the most fundamental things about advertising was just how you make the idea. And classically, you would, when you're, you know, when you're making TV commercials, you would always buy talent and buy the production company around certain outputs and you were priced around those outputs. One of the things we had to do for this campaign, I think what we're finding going forward is think of the enormous long tail of content we now need when we're making things. And these just aren't the edits to take the 60 to the 30 to the 15 to the bumper, et cetera, et cetera. Like we, we need to think about format and think about how we connect the story. You got to make it relevant for, for longer than one moment in time. Yeah. So for this, it was a month of relevant content. So 40, and, 40 videos. Yeah. And so the big challenge is our clients don't have more money to make that. So our challenge is how do we make all of that content for the same money that we used to just have to make that big hero ad. And so that really challenges us to rethink talent agreements and the type of people that we were casting. Um, type you know, of directors. The type of directors we use and, and the production environments that we use. So rather than uh, having a set set, you know, having the flexibility around that. So that was a big learning that has transformed a lot of things that we've done since in terms of how we maybe negotiate the production side of the work. It's also reframing it and, and getting the production companies just as excited about creating lots of content for probably the same amount of money rather than just cut downs of content. But, you know, reframing it as getting to shoot 40 videos that felt like it was a 40-part miniseries that went for a month is uh, it's sort of it's more exciting than doing one one big ad and lots of cut downs because the, the quality has to be just as, just as good. The craft needs to be there. It needs to look beautiful and needs to hook people in. So that's that's sort of the challenge of the industry is how do you create more that looks just as good on the same budget? Mm-hmm. So you've almost come into another question I had for you, which is quite an intriguing one and I, I don't actually think there is one answer, but um, <laughs> I'll throw this one at you, Ant. What actually is good creative in today's society, advertising, land, Oh, it's, that a, is it a is, it's a weird question. question. Yeah, not not a weird question. It's a good question. It's the same thing it's, as it's always been. I I think um, it's just got to <laughs> it's got to make you feel something. It's it's got to connect with you. It's got to tell you something. Um, but it, 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 it's, it's a tough one. Like it, it can be a really truthful piece of content. It, it's just got to be captivating. That's humor. It's engaging. It's useful it's a utility um but uh, probably more so it's got to be relevant um for today for culture for the for the people viewing it and to individuals and 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 to the brand like is it a relevant message but i don't know if that's a new thing um but by being more precise with who we're talking to we can be more relevant with that message that answers it. Anyway. Say, yeah, I reckon the only other thing that we've been talking about a lot um, together is the responsibility that we have in managing brands today. So, if you go back to the history of advertising, there were far more stable pillars of society that helped navigate the world. So, church and state, we could rely on far more. But I think as as is widely accepted that we can no longer look to government and no longer can look to church to sort of light the way, brands have to do it. And we often talk about the responsibility that brands have in shaping the society with which we live and whether that's on a representation of gender roles, for example, that, you know, women um, aren't framed in that classic way and equally men aren't framed in that classic way and we can see those those different roles. You know, you've seen great stuff from the ANZ about, uh, you know, um, equal rights in terms of sexual representation. So I think what we're seeing far more is the categories that brands play in they have a far greater responsibility to behave, you know, in, in an appropriate way for how that category should be best viewed for the best way that society should be. And, I, I mean, I think it's an interesting one. I certainly have noticed um, more so probably the start of this year that there are a lot of ads um, 
that do have really, really great storytelling and make you feel something, but that really lack that relevance for the brand. I mean, how do you reach that sweet spot of uh, be- making a good story, making it good content, but also selling a brand, uh, getting people to buy a certain product? Brands need to define, like, have a very clear mission of of where they want to go and, and what they stand for in the world. Um, not just tacking tacking their brand onto a cause or, and it's not all cause related. Like that brand can stand for being fun, you know. Like KFC over in the states is like pride in the fried is their sort of north star, and everything they do is fun and it's fried chicken. Like it's it's yeah, awesome. they just owned what they are. But like. Yeah. So it's just having that really clear view of, of what that brand stands for and then everything from there should fall into place. It's always a bit of a jigsaw puzzle to sort of see how it all fits together, but I guess that helps. There's a the great One of the great global examples for me right now is Volvo. Volvo have got, I don't know if it's their vision or their purpose, but either or they have this, this view that by, I think, 2020, no one inside or outside of Volvo will be hurt, which is quite amazing. Think about the heritage and safety that safety has always been about the passengers in the car and now they're thinking about protecting people outside the car. And then you look at some of the work that Great London did, for example, where they did life paint, which was helping cyclists, you know, be visible to drivers at night time. And that's a wonderful extension of purpose. But then I'm not sure if this is Volvo, so I don't, I don't want to sort of do it too critically, but then you'll see a, a car brand, for example, put, um, you know, like regeneration plates in the Sydney Harbour to grow an artificial reef. And that's when you've got to ask, what does that have to do with the purpose of that brand? And in that Volvo example, if that was Volvo, I'm not sure if it was, but that's very disconnected from that purpose and vision. And you can see very quickly just how that has drifted from the relevance of that brand to the people they're trying to connect with. I think the ultimate example of this is Pepsi when they did their infamous Kendall, Kendall Jenner, Jenner yeah, commercial. Yeah, That's yeah. just the classic example just, they, of trying they don't have too a place hard. For it. Yeah, 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 it's like wh- where was that purpose? How is that related to Pepsi? And it was just the most bizarre thing ever. Yeah, even um, even yesterday at the Adobe conference, the Coca Cola guys stood up and talked about how they touch sixteen percent of humanity. Mm. And um, and you think that that comes with a great responsibility, and you sort of look at what Coke is, which is essentially sugar and plastic, which are two of the great perils that the human race are facing right now. And you, and you sort of think, well, how, how do you talk about refreshment in that context without addressing those other needs? One one of the things that we're fascinated by at the moment, and we're just sort of going on a learning journey, is voice. And one of the one of the great things that is going to that voice is going to drive is brand transparency. So. Right now, if I want to know what your environmental policy is as brands, I have to take some time to look it up. Whereas if I say, hey, Google, um, I want to buy, uh, you know, Toyota Corolla, hey, you know, hey, what's their environmental policy like? Is there, are their airbags safe? How many people died in that car last year? All of a sudden, that long tail of news content that isn't often in your last three feet as a customer going to purchase that product is now visible. So we talk about brand transparency and we think we're in an era of brand transparency now. It is only going to explode more and more when the interface to information is as simple as a request. Now, we're talking a lot about purpose. Me and Abby, we're both eco-warriors over here. I'm sure you two are too. I just wonder, do you think sitting in our Adlan Chippendale bubble, we maybe overemphasize the impact that purpose can have on a consumer's decision? Maybe someone who's not in the city, not an eco-warrior or like picking up plastic up the floor like I know Abby does. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's a great question. I We actually had a workshop with one of our clients on this last week and was with their board and they asked a very similar question. Um, I can't remember the stats, but essentially there's there's a number of Nelson studies, there's um, WGSN studies globally that very strongly validate that regardless of socioeconomic status, purpose and, um, I, and I guess a relevant place in society that ensures our enduring survival as a species is being well-received. Um, I think I think there was a stat, something like if you're a purpose-driven brand, your sales growth on average globally is 5%. If you're not a purpose-driven brand, your sales growth is negative one. So I can't remember who I read that from, but it was, um, I think there's, a, there's plenty of evidence that shows that that's not a, you know, that's not a privilege for the rich to make those decisions. Well, I certainly hope so. Do you want to end it there or? Um, I did have what I've got one more okay. question yet. Um, just to bring it back a couple of um, steps, sort of maybe where we started the conversation. Uh, There are a number of agencies that launch every week 
um, that really struggle to scale. When CHEP started six years ago, how difficult was it to get on pitch lists and how did you bring the agency to such success in in quite a short period of time when you didn't necessarily start with winning all the typically sexy brands? Mm, yeah, good question. We didn't win anything and we weren't on any pitch lists. I think um, the beginning of, of CHEP was CHE and Proximity combined and in my first week, I think I was fired by three clients. So it was a hard beginning and um, it's very hard to convince to be on a pitch list, let alone try to win a pitch list. But it's not, it's not um, even now, you know, like when maybe the perception is that we're doing really well is we'll have some days when we want to really blow it all up and, and rethink it and other days that we feel like we're flying high. I think over the six years though, we've just learned that advertising is this amazing roller coaster where if you have a really bad day, you can almost wake up the next day and know it's okay. And what, what helps that balance is working with people that you really love and respect. Um, you know, I think one of the one of the greatest joys I have is working with Ant. And I think it wasn't until Ant actually joined us. Uh, when was it? Start of 2016 or 15 mm-hmm, when you came back from New York. But it was only then that actually we started to click with our strategy product and our creative product. And, um, you know, and, and even with Ant, like I think, and, you know, I'm talking on your behalf, but just trying to recruit the right talent. You know, we, we all go through these um these curves, I guess, where you sort of start at the bottom and you've got to you've got to work your way up. Now, you know, I guess our motivating factor is always humility because I think that roller coaster I described before is that you can be at the top of it and then before you know it, you're at the bottom of it. So yeah, it's got to be consistent. Like, yeah, like even coming back and, and trying to build out the creative team, we had a really good reputation for an agency and it was respected by clients. It was harder to bring on creative people. We've got. A couple of runs on the board and we've built a really strong team across melbourne and sydney um we've, we've just got a really good depth of talent across the agency that hopefully can allow us to be more consistent because i don't i don't think we're, we're where we want to be yet and you know um definitely not getting ahead of ourselves i think we're, we've done a few good things but we're, we're building a really strong team and the, the more the more good things we put out into the world, the easier it is to get new people and get new clients. And there is a bit of a buzz, but you've got to keep it going. Yeah. I think one of the other big things too is clients that that are wanting to have a partnership. And that sounds like a really easy thing to say, but we're really blessed and really privileged actually to have pretty phenomenal clients that trust us. You know, we've got clients that we can make mistakes on. And I think, again, while that's a bit of a cliche around fail harder, I don't think anyone tells us to screw up, but I think sometimes there are unavoidable things that you make mistakes on. You have to just own them. And then sometimes there's calculated risks that don't go very well. And, you know, we look at billion points now and it felt pretty easy in, in hindsight. But in, at the time, that was hard, you know, like the, the velocity campaign. Yeah, velocity yeah. campaign to send an email to the to six point or 7.2 million frequent flyer members to uh, do a promotion that we were then going to retract and then honor the next day. You know, there was all sorts of potential legal ramifications of that and brand reputation issues. I think even at the time, that was when the Google and YouTube brand reputation issues were going on. So, you know, for, for Dean and the team there at Velocity, that was a big call to make that. And um, success is always easy in hindsight. It's always hard at the time. But, you know, I, th- I think we've got this nice thing going on. We've got great people in the agency and we're working with great people at the client side. Yeah. Um, we're solving real client problems like day to day, like sort of in the weeds with them. And that builds a level of trust. So next time we sort of have our next velocity ig whatever campaign we try to sell to them it's not coming from a place where we're trying to get one over them it's like truly we know their business um like most agencies do but you know (laughs) like it it, i do do feel like we are in there with them and like them velocity winning um umbrella brand of the year or marketing team of the year that was for us just such a highlight because you know they they pushed themselves as a brand and it paid off and I think, you know, they're seeing the results of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's that's very strongly to do with Dean and that culture there. You know, they decided that they wanted to be pretty amazing. They weren't going to be, you know, seconds to, to Qantas. So they've done very well on that. And just finally, I have noticed that you have launched a new campaign for AGL. Does this mean that you are now AGL's creative agency of record? Yes, it certainly does. <laughs> it's um yeah, look, it's we're really we're really delighted with this. We've we've actually worked with AGL for about five years now on their new energy business, so their solar business. 
And uh, we've had the real privilege to to work on some bigger projects for them recently, and that's to expand our scope. So we're talking about what are we working on hard on right now. Before, like that's that's something we're working really hard on right now. We've got some some very exciting things that we're working on together. But again, that has come from a fundamental understanding of their category and their industry and their business. Because you know, when when the headline news every day is the neg, and uh, you know, you've got some very bolshy politicians that are pushing a price agenda that you know doesn't really exist it's um you know that's a complicated category so that's another client that uh, a little bit like we we're just talking about with dean at velocity you know and like the guys at telstra and iag we've really built a great trust in a very short period of time but yeah you've picked it abby and um <laughs> yeah it's uh, it's something we're very proud to be part of good well done thank you beautiful thank you so much thanks for joining us thanks for having thank us you. thank you thanks, thanks guys And just before we go, a bit of housekeeping. Thank you very much for supporting the Mumbrella cast since we brought it back. If you haven't had a chance yet, we would love it if you could rate it. Or maybe even write a review on iTunes or wherever you go to find your podcasts. And that'll help other people find it too. That's it for now. We do hope to see you next week when we'll be chatting to ex-bachelor turned health marketing expert, Sam Wood. Thanks all. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Tim. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Tim. Toodle pen. <laughs>